podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Fire for them, fire for them. If you're looking for that 35 bag umbrella and all damn thing there, keep it locked with this Unomics podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Hashtag Dishonomics Podcast. Make sure if you're enjoying the podcast, listening to it, any thoughts, views, or just a random shout out, make sure you use the hashtag, Hashtag Dishonomics. For those who listened to last week's episode, God bless you. I spoke on smoking, um, the difference in terms of what's happened to the numbers and how many people smoke, etc. since the smoking rules came about because for the young listeners there's a time when you could smoke in a restaurant can't like obviously that doesn't happen anymore and the different demographics out smoke and who is more prevalent to be able to smoke and all that type of stuff women who smoke that have children i mean who are pregnant sorry and of course we spoke a little bit about the impact of shisha on the demographics towards the end of the pod so make sure you check that out very important Patreon, make sure you jump on my Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Dysonomics, or you can get the Patreon app, exclusive content, which is going to help grow the Dysonomics brand as a whole. By the time you listen to this, there will be a podcast on the madness that was GameSpot and AMC, um, the whole trading and betting fiasco, if you want to call it, Wall Street getting involved apparently. So I'm joined by Macrodisiac himself, aka David Bell, um, trader and writer, so we spoke about this in pretty in some detail. So quick 20, 25 minutes, I believe. So make sure you check that out on Patreon. Um, you could join for as little as £4 a month and it's definitely worth it. And for those who are getting to this investment ball game, you're going to be seeing regular investment stuff on my Patreon. Um, I might detail my investment journey this year. I'll probably start that in a few, in a few weeks. And I'm going to be getting David on regularly. I'm going to try to get him on every week or definitely at least every two weeks for a kind of market watch for Dysonomics Patreon. So you'll be able to get that for a cheeky £4 a month onwards and upwards. So make sure you check that out. Now, this week's episode, I'm joined by my my dog, my boy, Dr. Lee. And we, of course, he's a doctor, a scientist, and all-round genius. And we spoke about the NHS. Well, not the NHS, really. We spoke about the pandemic and health, sorry. I don't know why I'm mixing up health and the NHS. So we spoke... Uh, he's currently a GP, he was a doctor before, but he's now a GP. And he spoke about the experience being a general, working a general practice in the pandemic and how much it's impacted their mentally, their amount of work, how it's impacted them financially, how some um, people who he works with now having to get second jobs or having to remortgage their house and stuff like that because of the pandemic. And also we spoke in detail about misinformation within the community in terms of scientific and medical information. Some come from WhatsApp, some come from Twitter, some come from Clubhouse. We spoke about that. And we also delved into the science. We spoke about how vitamin D could be potentially helpful, um, convalescent plasma, reinfection rates, vaccines, and how the vaccines are being administered in the UK, what a long COVID is and how people may be suffering. And also we took on plenty of questions from the listeners, including we spoke about um, what he spoke about the impact, potential impact, if it exists in terms of infertility and all different types of questions. So this episode was a good one. Any questions, please reach out or hashtag, hashtag Dysonomics or message the Dysonomics pod Instagram page. But yeah, here we go. Me and Dr. Lee. (laughs) 
Hi guys, MXM, and listen to the Dysonomics podcast because it's late. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dysonomics podcast. I'm joined again by a good friend of mine and all round genius, in my opinion, apart from when it comes to Paul Pogba. My guy, Dr. Leroy, what are you saying? I'm good, man. How are you, man? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. How are you? How are you doing? How's, first of all, how's work been in the last year? Oh, man. Do you know what? Do you know what I always used to say to you, yeah? Uh, people overdo medicine. I never really get stressed at work. That's all changed in the last year. The last year, work has been outrageous. Just literally unbelievable. Um, and uh, you know what? And it's really quite frustrating because you see in the general public, there is a perception that G- general practice is closed or GPs aren't working. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, because I've used a GP quite a few times in the last year or so. Yeah, and the way, because there's been a lot of big changes very quickly, which which you, you, everyone can see, and the changes have been detrimental to the individual GP because it means we have to work a lot harder. So I've probably worked harder in this last year than I have in my entire career thus far, and I've been more under pressure Um yeah, it's, it's just been really difficult, really difficult. And the reasons for that, like, are the, the multiple. So because of the change from face-to-face appointments, so you, you'll have X amount of face-to-face appointments, to either video or telephone consultations, the way a lot of practices have done it is because you're not examining the patient a lot of the time in sort of most cases unless you bring them down. Um, so they say, right, this is going to take less time to do than a normal face-to-face consultation. Mm. So in the same amount of time, they've increased the amount of consultations. Okay. So and obviously, the thing that really wears on you as a doctor a lot of time is the the thinking the thinking behind what you're doing and the decision-making process. So for example, it's not so much how many hours you're working, it's how many patients, patient decisions you make in an hour and how complex those decisions are. And that's what's the fatiguing factor of it. So because we're seeing more patients, or we're dealing with more patients, I should say, in the same period of time, you're making more patient decisions, it's mentally just draining. It feels like you're literally just like slogging, slogging, slogging all day rather than a normal day where you're seeing all people face-to-face, which can actually be quite enjoyable. Mm. Um, And obviously, every patient you see comes with uh, some downstream admin. So the admin's increased as well. And obviously, as well as that, because you're not seeing a lot of patients face-to-face, the ones you aren't seeing face-to-face, it's, it's riskier. So it's tougher It's tougher to do and it's tougher to be sure in your decisions because that's not how we were trained. We were trained, obviously, you take a history, speak to the patient, and that performs the majority of your diagnosis. Then after that, you do the examination to help support what you thought in terms of the diagnosis. And then, obviously, your investigations confirm that. But because we're missing that middle step, you can never be as sure as before. So it's riskier decision-making. You're taking a lot more um, chances. You're risking, obviously, legal issues and complaints, which obviously plays on people's minds. Uh, so, yeah, and obviously, as well as that, staff sickness. So because I've, if someone like is off sick or if two people are off sick or two people are isolating, their workload don't go away. And of course. A, lot of it, a lot of it can be deferred, which is cool, but then... The urgent stuff or the emergency cases or things that have to be seen, that you, someone's got to see them and it, it doesn't change. The workload doesn't stop. Someone's got to see them on the same day. So if you're um, in a general practice, so you'll usually have one or two on-call slash duty doctors who, who are on, 
the, the, the on-call days are just relentless. Like, honestly, relentless. Like, I'm usually one who finishes on time, gets all my stuff done. Sometimes I'm leaving at 9 p.m., I'm thinking. Or I've, I'm leaving at 9 p.m., getting home, and then carrying on work on the laptop till, like, 11. I'm like... That's what? mental. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's... it's, it's it's, it's a bit mad. It's been a bit mad. And um, that's to say the least. Okay, so obviously COVID has a massive impact on that. Um, have you, so in terms of like your day-to-day, um, I remember at the beginning of the lockdown, I remember you were talking about how sometimes um, Treble One will kind of like send maybe patients your way that are big COVID risks and these times you didn't have the correct PPE equipment. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. that you are better protected now than you were at the top of the pandemic or is it still pretty um, much the same? Yeah, um, in day-to-day job. So the reason is I think it took a little bit of time for the logistics of the situation to get sorted. So when I was mainly complaining was when I was doing sort of out-of-hours work and stuff, it was just a little bit haphazard. But in the main... In our area, at least, I can I can only speak for our area. They've basically outsourced all of the potential COVID work, so all the COVID work goes to one centre, which is still at our practice, but in a different place, in a different part, a different building, and it's called the COVID hub. So anyone with any type of symptoms that could be COVID gets seen by a doctor there. Okay, um, and that's not just for sort of our practice; that's for the entire area. So every uh, GP in the area who's got someone who's got a cough, someone who's got shortness of breath, they'll send them to that specific centre and they've got full PPE and they they will be seen there. So we feel a lot more safe and a lot more protected from that perspective. Um, I mean, you do get, obviously, the odd people who just lie about their symptoms because it's more convenient to see their GP, which isn't very nice, but oh, it, yeah. happens. it happens. But, um, but most of the time, definitely feel a lot more safe and a lot more protected from that perspective. Okay, cool. So, okay, that that's at least some some form of help. And um, COVID has really been absolutely moving crazy, especially when did you start to feel like COVID, I'll probably call it the third wave, really. It's the third wave. Uh, when did you start to feel like the third wave was at en route? Um, so it was around December time, I remember thinking, I'll just look. I remember, the you, thing is, remember you messaged me, yeah, saying it's getting... Yeah. I was like looking at the numbers, but then it was more because you you can kind of tell what's going on from these on-call days and the duty list because the duty list was nearly like 70% full. Uh, obviously, they extend it at the end, but seven, the whole list, we have a, like a, a stock list was 70% full at like 10, 11 a.m. And I'm just seeing cough, cough, mm. cough, cough. And I'm like, oh, right, okay, fair enough. So that's um, around December time. It was really ramping up. I'm thinking, oh dear. So this is this isn't going to be good. And uh, for uh, political reasons, I won't get into. They were reluctant to obviously lock it down, close the borders, and mm. do do them type of things. So um, that's when I really started to think, oh, this is this is not going to end well, and it's probably going to be worse than the first the first one. Yeah, and yeah, I think um, they said it's like November the seventeenth. Um, the total number of deaths, which obviously has surpassed 50,000, unfortunately, um, mm. 100,000, sorry, unfortunately, this week, half of them have come since November, which yeah. is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. Uh, I mean, yeah, no, you're right, because um, my brother is a, a, works in anaesthetics and ITU and stuff, and when I speak to him, he... he... <sighs> Like he, he's just saying, you just get they're just dropping out like flies, just boom, 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 boom. Crazy. It, it, it's really difficult in this last end of the year, um, sort of beginning of this year. 
it's, it's been really, really tough for all healthcare professionals, uh, doctors, nurses. I know loads of nurses who are saying the same thing. Um, allied healthcare professionals who are saying the same thing. I think, um, and everyone's just a bit fatigued. Everyone's just a bit, oh man, I'm tired of this now. Um, because working at that pace for a, a couple of months is one thing because, and then you've got something to look forward to. But working at that pace constantly for the year, um, which has been really difficult, and then not even having like a holiday to look forward to. You can't go abroad. You can't go out of your friends. You can't do the things that you normally do to take your mind off the stuff. You can't even go to the gym. It, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not easy, man. Um, so, yeah, it's been... By this back end of the year from December, it's been really, really tough. And it's really, really, really sad as well because a lot of our patients... You get to know them and you build relationships. Mm. And honestly, like some of the patients I've lost, it hurts. Like it, it, it's difficult to describe because you, you've, you've cared for them for X amount of time. You, you have a chat about their kids, their grandkids. Um, so for me personally, I, especially the patients who um, are really struggling, I personally like to build a real good connection with them. So a lot of them I'll give my work number and I'll say, look, call me on a weekend if there's a problem. Mm. Call me call me anytime. Um, I'll speak to them on a weekend. I'll be calling them at 10 o'clock because I know that's what time they're in. Um, just because sometimes because the NHS is not the best thing in the world for, for reasons you know I've said on this podcast before and sometimes you just have to go above and beyond because you just want to make someone's life a bit better of course but um, yeah so but then when you lose that person and you build a relationship with them it, it's it's really sad it's really really sad and there's been a lot of that and it's like it's emotionally draining at the same time yeah of course so um, even just myself like in my close proximity I've seen people or people I know of who've lost family members or friends or cousins or whatever Mm. And that is obviously just a, a tough pill to swallow. But seeing that on a daily or weekly basis, I don't know how um, the health professionals are are doing yeah. it. It's crazy. And you know, you know what's mad something as well because people don't realise. Obviously, general practice isn't. Um, it's not like the NHS. So there are there are private businesses and stuff, which I've mentioned before to you guys. And um, a lot of financial problems or a lot of financial problems have occurred because of COVID for general practices. So. Because, so there have been like big arguments about um, protecting the income because obviously I mentioned they get paid for several different streams of income. One of them is cough and how well you're looking after people with long-term health conditions and if you're hitting the targets, etc. But that's been impossible with COVID. But luckily the government have agreed to protect the income. But obviously a lot of practices plan to improve year on year, like businesses, they plan their turnover increases year on year. So because that has been stagnant and it was planned previously that the, the, um, the, the turnover, turnover or income would increase, that, that's, that's affected some practices badly. And some GPs, because now you have to offer a certain amount of appointments, well, there's a suggested certain amount of appointments per uh, thousand of, uh, of list size that you have. Um, well, now they've increased the amount of patients each person seeing in some practices that means that a lot of the GP, a lot of GPs work as a lot on a locum basis, so they just come in, go out, or they're short term, like it's like contract work basically. Yeah. A lot of practices have turned around because of the financial issues. They said, "All right, we don't need you." So I know GPs that have had to remortgage their house because they've got no work. Uh, I know GPs that have had to uh, do mad, mad stuff, take other jobs. Um, That's I crazy. Really, 
financial difficulty because they've had literally all their work has gone for like a year. They've, or a lot of them have taken up substantive roles in other practices, um, like salaried roles or gone into partnerships. But um, yeah, some of them were really, really struggling um, in the pandemic from a financial perspective because of because of all of this as well. So Yeah, it's quite, so it's crazy how COVID has literally touched almost everybody's pockets and there's not many people who have been kind of free from the crutches of COVID. Do you, do you see any potential upside in um, terms of the financial outlook for the rest of the year with the vaccine coming in and stuff like that for general practices or is it still too early to tell? Sure. Um, so it's, well, they've, they've said they're going to protect the income from the, uh, like said, the quaff, which is what you get for managing people with long-term health conditions and also the additional income. So things like I do minor surgery, so that brings a lot of additional income to the practice. So they're going to pay us our the previous year's um, income and what we earned for it. Um, so that's good. Um, now, with the vaccines, I mean, the vaccines are another financial question in themselves because there's this, this myth that, general practices are making stupid money from delivering a vaccine, but most are struggling to break even or even making a slight loss because of the way the contract is. And that's why a lot of practices have actually refused to get involved and refused the contract. Um, and the contract's going to the, what we call the primary care network the primary care network or a different primary care network, for example, because um yeah, it just doesn't make financial sense and, and they'll just lose too much money. Can you go into um, can you go into why it doesn't make financial sense? If you can. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So um I can't give you exact numbers. Yeah, of but, course. Just yeah. Um, in terms of uh, so you will get X amount of money for delivering a um the vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. But you need obviously highly trained staff, you need it's ideally nurses to administer, draw it up, and pharmacists, et cetera, et cetera, to do the consent. So you need you have a per unit time cost that it's going to cost you to do that. And obviously you're delivering a large part of your population. So, um, so for example, start with the over 80s, et cetera. Um, so per unit time and what it costs you in staff costs and, um, and, and all those type of things, it, it, you barely, barely break even in terms of how much you're actually getting for per vaccine in terms of the administration. So if, I mean, this was something that I was involved in at our practice. So I managed to make a, we managed to make a system where we managed to make it profitable. And the reason we did that is because we've got an extremely large practice um, and economies of scale. And we basically did it for the whole PCN. So every practice in our area, we just sort of said, right, we're just going to vaccinate everybody um, so we could um, make it profitable. But a lot of places with smaller practices or more difficult logistically, that per unit time cost from nursing time, pharmacy time, et cetera, they're just not been able to make it viable for them and it's, it's really tight it's really 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 tight in terms of margins and so that's one thing i was a bit frustrated about i wish that i mean we're doing all this stuff in the pandemic i wish they'd just give a, a contract which actually rewarded for the work that we're doing in terms of delivering the vaccine but you can understand they're trying to save public money at the same time so yeah but um some would argue and i say some i say i say myself in terms of the people that should be first in line for quite heavily beneficial and generous packages, it should be the people that are keeping us alive. Surely, 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 and and there's a, and there's a clear benefit um, economically by just having a healthy population. Let alone in terms of political benefit. In terms, of, it doesn't make sense to me. But one thing I want to see um, now, obviously. Now we in general practice work really hard, and a lot of people in my profession will 
probably have a go at me for this, but especially the people in the hospital and particularly the people in the heaviest areas like ITU and stuff, the government has to reward them after this. And and the public should demand it. Mm. They should demand it. I want to see nurses being given sabbaticals because I'm sorry, these, especially these ITU nurses, honestly, heroes, heroes. I want to see them being given a month off paid work sabbatical you you go and enjoy yourself or something similar to that they want they need something tangible they need something tangible like you, they can't not reward a lot of these people who have who have done this incredible work because i'm fully aware that yeah my work has been more difficult but i'm sorry what these people happen to put up on in itu and in um in some parts of the hospital um some of these medical registrars who are just literally working medical consultants who are just literally under the under the cost twenty four seven, A and E, you got to reward these people. Have to absolutely have to um, because um, it's a monumental effort that has taken in the last year. Yeah, I agree. I could I, I I couldn't agree more. Also, putting themselves at risk. We've seen many. I think I'm who I was speaking to, but I think there were nurse not or I think one of my friends whose mum's a nurse. Like she's had to do more work because literally everybody on her wing has COVID. So, like, and we've seen so many people, uh, we kept on seeing the stories of so many health um, practitioners dying at the hands of COVID. So they're putting their bodies on, like, their minds, their lives. And, like, for example, I, I managed to sneak off on holiday last year. Like, yeah. I don't know a single person who works in NHS has managed to go on holiday. Not a single person. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, man, like, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I just need something tangible. And um, I think the public should really be putting pressure on the government to, to demand it because... Um, uh, there's been such a sacrifice and effort, and, and it's, it's it's just been sad, man. Because you like you say, a lot of healthcare professionals lost their lives, and a lot of our colleagues and a lot of people we we trained who trained us, especially because there are a lot of older people who mm-hmm. trained us. Like when one of someone I know was really upset was one of the matrons on one of my first jobs. And when you're F1 and you come in, you don't know shit. I mean. <laughs> You, you know your stuff medically in the back of your head, but in terms of actual th- how things work, and I'm sorry, the matrons, the, the good ones anyway, as long as you're not lazy, they help you so much. And a lot of them, most of them are so safe and they're so cool with it. And seeing people like that die is just, oh, man. Um, and it's just, oh, it's just I, I can't explain how sad it is, man. Um, every, I mean, I've read people out there have, have had horrible, traumatic things at the same time, so... They probably understand, but it, it's been really sad, and I just feel that you have to reward these people. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And we have to bang on the tables for that. We can't be doing one, two clap for NHS on the Thursday, and then go back to status quo. Like these people need to be rewarded, and there definitely needs to be changes to the, especially to re- remuneration in terms of like the money that they actually earn. That has to change because yeah, we've seen in this pandemic how valuable that is. It's actually keeping the country on its feet. So um. I'm going to speak to you. You wanted to talk about misinformation. I just want a statement about it, really. Not a statement. Okay. I, just, I just want to say, like, obviously a lot of your listeners will be from the same community that we are. Yeah. Um, there's so much misinformation I'm seeing in, in our community, but I just don't understand where where it's coming from. You're getting a lot of people with big followings who are just talking rubbish and people are taking it up. All I'd like to say is, look, question everything that you're told, particularly if it's from a, an unverified source. 
ask people for their evidence, ask people why they believe what they believe. Um, don't be afraid to question people. I mean, it's all good having these conversations and stuff, but really try and go to valid sources for your information because there's a lot of things that are being said that are dangerous and a lot of things that are being said which are causing people to lose their lives because they believe them. And there's no real evidence or basis for them believing them other than a video or a blog post or, or something like that. So always try and verify your the information that you're receiving in some way um, and look for evidence. And just because something sounds like it could it, it sounds like it's intuitively, it, it sounds like it makes sense, doesn't mean it makes sense. Um, and it's just frustrating. And I mean, I was, there was a, that tweet that um, we, we, we had a little chat about that was retweeted about, oh, you're entitled to a second opinion if your doctor doesn't do this, do this. Like, there's just an adversarial relationship at the moment with um, our community and the healthcare profession, which is just sad. And I understand there's reasons for that, don't get me wrong, because trust me, I mean, even if you're working in the NHS, you know there's racism, you know there's there's a lot of problems. And But one of the things I'd just say, if I it was a take-home message in terms of that, if, is if doctors are human beings, and if you want your doctor to do what you want, or you want your doctor to... I mean, there's a minimum standard that you have to uphold, and if you don't uphold that minimum standard, that's a problem, but... The minimum standard isn't the best thing in the world. Everyone wants the best. Mm -hmm. And if you, to have the best, you need your doctor usually to go above and beyond the call of duty to give you the best care. Now, no one, no human being is going to go above and beyond the call of duty if you st the whole relationship is adversarial and you put people on the back foot. And that's just human nature. So the best thing you can do to get what you want from your doctor or to get them to help you the best that they can is be nice to them. Mm. Like, just be friendly, be nice. Honestly, when someone comes in or someone's on the phone, they're nice, they're friendly, they ask how you are, you're like, oh, wow. Naturally, you want to do everything you can for this person. You, like, things that you shouldn't really be doing but you can probably get away with, you, you'll do that. You'll do whatever you want. So... Just, I just would like to see the adversarial relationship from both ends just just calm down a bit. And I just, I don't really know where it's that. Well, I know somewhere it's in one, but I don't really know. I think it, a lot of it gets stoked up on social media. Big time, big time. It's 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 something that's really detrimental to us. It's really really not doing good, and it's um, leading to poorer outcomes. So I just, I don't know. Um, I, I, I'd like to see that that end if possible. I don't think it will ever end completely, but I'd like to see it improve at least. Yeah, 100%. I, I, the misinformation to me is so scary because it's the vim and vigor which people talk about it. And naturally, people are gullible. And if they're, if they're saying, oh, this person's got 10,000, 15,000 followers and so many people believe in it, and there's certain medical, medical terms, people are like, oh, fuck it, I believe it's true. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. The amount of discussions I've had to had about the Great Reset, I'm like, brother, go and watch the World Economic Forum yourself. Like, Dr. D like they didn't say that is this is not a vaccine that's gonna you know turn you into a mutant zombie and kill you like yeah. like come on like let's 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 not be silly but it's 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 difficult it's difficult um, when people have made up their minds to be honest yeah hundred percent hundred percent it is difficult but I just I would encourage people to seek verified source, sources of information and always question what they're told um, and. Don't just regurgitate what you hear, particularly if that person has no qualifications or credentials of them of their own, really.
I can't agree more. Okay, so on the list of things we need just about when we, we spoke, well, you broke it down really. <laughs> Let me even store your shine. Uh, you mentioned science. So, first, I've got here is vitamin D. So, see me, I know nothing about vitamins. My mom's always telling me, I told me, take your vitamins. I'm like, yeah, 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 but I don't know nothing. <laughs> I, I don't know shit about shit. So, I've seen people talk about vitamin D often. So, yeah. what's the what's the just behind that? And, um, so vitamin D uh, is often produced, it's produced by humans um, from sunlight on their skin, right? So that's in, in a nutshell. Um, now, overall, there's a lot of doubt about vitamin D's role in the body. I mean, but we know that having adequate levels of vitamin D is good. That's what we know from current evidence. Now, most people, particularly in this part of the world, will be have insufficient levels of vitamin D at this time of year because you're not getting as much sunlight. It's the UK. It's not very sunny anyway. But if you look at a lot of studies and from lots of different areas, one of the most recent ones being from Israel in September, they said that there's a massive correlation between low levels of vitamin D and increased levels of COVID, well, increased level of infection and increased severity of the infection leading to increased hospitalizations and increased ICU that evidence is really, in terms of, I know correlation is not causation, but there's a lot of smaller studies which are showing that it's not, they're, they're indicating that it might not just be correlation, that there might be a causative relationship. But uh, if, if there, anyone's going to do anything in terms of if they were to get COVID to prevent them getting really unwell, I feel that taking and making sure you've got adequate levels of vitamin D is a no-brainer. I think it's, an, a, I think it's open and shut case. From all the evidence I've looked at, I think, I mean, I'm taking vitamin D now. Um, and, uh, <laughs> so the I'm, I'm literally drinking vitamin D as we speak. So um, there's, um, I, I, I'm not going to plug them because they've got, but there's like a vitamin D supplement drink which I'm taking. But, um, but yeah, just um, I just feel like supplementing with vitamin D, especially older relatives, um, uh, would it's just a no-brainer because I feel that looking at the evidence at the moment, that is gonna that could go a, a long way to helping protect against the severe infection which is killing people um now there needs more evidence and they need a random a large-scale randomized control trial to confirm that and that's currently underway in london but i just feel that it's not going to do us any harm um and that's one thing i i i I think i wanted to to mention okay so vitamin d we need to get our we need to get our vitamin d up get our vitamin d okay cool so i can't even say this word uh, there's Con- a, Go on. Convalescent plasma. So there was a trial actually. Just this is a bit of bad news, but um, I was just, <laughs> just trying to. I was just looking to summarise the research because there was a thought about. So plasma is um, when you take plasma as part of the blood, essentially, mm-hmm. and you take it out of someone who's had COVID. So the antibodies are in there, and you give it to someone who is um, either suffering from COVID or in hospital, etc. And there was a thought that this might help be a, a good treatment. So that's not that's not a good treatment. Um, so there was a, a recovery trial in Oxford recently, um, which published its results, and it showed that there was no benefit and not effective, unfortunately. So because uh, we're looking at ways that so obviously you've got the vaccination as a as a method. There's lots of different methods, but then when people do get ill, we're looking at therapeutics, we're looking at drugs, we're looking at different ways that we can stop people dying, essentially. Um, so obviously there was the study about um, steroids and dexamethasone, which was um, positive and it's used in treatment of COVID, which is great, um, which was done in the UK. Um, this one was a, done in Oxford, but the plasma wasn't positive. There are some drugs that we call monoclonal antibodies, which are looking positive. 
Um, just need to wait to finalize that that research and and, and then um, yeah. So there's you're looking at lots of different ways which we can keep people alive um, if they do get severe infection, essentially. Okay. Uh, speaking of infection, so reinfection. So mm. I've I I had COVID. I think early last year and I've just been under the impression that yeah I ain't gonna get it again and then when I every time I look at numbers you don't really see much numbers I think last time I checked it was like 10 people in the world but I was probably back in of last year that have confirmed reinfections of COVID so obviously so what are your thoughts and from what evidence you've seen in terms of the chances of people getting reinfection how much of that is a likely thing and the vaccine against reinfection all, like all of the above okay so um, reinfection is a funny one because um, there, there was a lot of there were a lot of questions, a lot of queries about this early on. But we've had some we've had some evidence. There's a siren study um, which was done, and that shows that um, reinfection is really not likely. It's unlikely. It's possible but unlikely. Mm-hmm. So it shows that past infection provides. The conclusion was past infection provides an 83 percent protection um, against again reinfection and getting symptomatic. COVID-19 infection. Okay. Now, that, that's not enough to say that you can't transmit it like, once you've been infected. So that, that that's the jury's still out on that. But in terms of getting symptomatic COVID-19 infection, past infection gives an 83%. Um, so I think there was, oh, I don't remember how many there was. It was like four, how many was there? It's like 400 or something. And there was like, four, I think there was a couple that's 40 or something, 40 reinfections in the case, in the study. I don't remember. I think there's 449 um, and 40 of them, or something along them lines. But mm-hmm. I don't want to give you false numbers, so let me just be quiet regarding that. But in a nutshell, um, it, it is possible. So when they did the study, they showed that most of them had a possible reinfection, but then a, quite a few had a probable reinfection, So, which is a higher level of um, assurance that that was definitely a true reinfection. But yeah, so it's possible but unlikely. So 83% protection is pretty good. Um, that's actually in keeping with some of the vaccines that we have. Um, also, there was a study about antibodies. Yeah, um, I saw that. Yeah, so um, I think that was six or seven months out that people still had antibodies, So, um, which is, again, positive. So it's showing that they're not fading away as quickly as once thought because there was a school of thought back in the, earlier in the pandemic that the antibodies were only lasting a couple of months. So um, so that, that's positive news regarding reinfection. So if you've had COVID, there is a good chance that you're not going to get it again. However, they don't know if you can not if you can uh, transmit it or not, even if after you've had it. Okay. Yeah, so that's um, some decent, that's some decent um, news, I would guess, um, yeah. especially with the fact that vaccines are getting rolled out and so many people have had COVID. In fact, let me even look at the numbers and of people who've tested positive for COVID in total so far. Um, it is so, where is it? So even, even in the last, what, seven days, 200,000 people have tested positive for COVID, which is, which is, which is actually insane. Like 200,000 people. So 3.7 million people mm. officially have tested positive for coronavirus. But then again, think about all the people in the early days of the pandemic when we were barely yeah. testing as many people. Like right now we're testing of, like about what five hundred thousand? There were seven hundred thousand total tests conducted yesterday, so yeah. so the capacity's gone up. So I don't know, but um, yeah, that's decent news. Okay. But you know what's nuts? Because all them infections, but think about how many people haven't had it yet. It's true in the population. So that's that's what I'm saying. So like, if it weren't for 
the incredible efforts of the scientists who have managed to make some vaccines and the incredible efforts of um, uh, obviously the, the healthcare profession as a whole, um, we'd only be like, what, 10% through, through the pandemic or something. So <laughs> Bro, it's true. We, we'd be finished. Like, we'd literally be finished. This will go on forever. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's, um, it's not that many people in terms of the overall population have actually had it. So, yeah, we need to get that, them vaccines out as yeah. quickly as possible. 100. Okay, speaking of vaccines, so the, what are the vaccines so far? Um, I've, I've, got, I've got a few questions on those, but I'll probably leave it to the end. But we can talk about the vaccines and how they're being rolled out in the UK. Obviously, we've got this thing where we're giving out first dose, we're get, trying to give out as many, when I say we, not me, because it ain't my decision. Yeah. But the government has decided to give out as many people the first dose of the virus, of the virus, of the vaccine, and then yeah. giving them the second dose at a, a later date than previously um, yeah. prescribed. So, so far, 7.4 million people, uh, up until including the 27th of January, have had their first dose, and mm. only 476,298 people have had their f- second dose. So, four, mm. under half a million people have been fully vaccinated, and just under 7.5 million people are halfway there, allegedly. So, what's your thoughts on all of the above? Okay, so with the vaccines, I mean, not to patronise anybody, obviously, any of your listeners, but vaccines essentially are something which is trying to prevent us getting symptomatic infection of the specific virus that they're vaccinating against or virus bacteria. Wait, oh, quick, quickly. So when you say symptomatic, could you explain to listeners um, why so that's why what, that's what I mean is, so um, like there's, there's different types of thresholds, but one I say is, so if you were to come into contact with COVID, you will not get sick. You will not have. You will not. You will not get any symptoms. So you will not be unwell. Okay, that, okay. That's what. The, that's the aim of the vaccines. Now, there is obviously a set a name above that to prevent you getting to stop transmission. So even if you come into contact with it, you can't transmit it to someone else. But again, that's that's a high standard, and that needs more evidence to prove that that's that's um, that that that's it, that the vaccine is doing that. But the main thing is to stop people getting unwell. Um, now. The, the most popular ones at the moment, obviously, are the Oxford, in this country at least, are the Oxford and the Pfizer. Now, in terms of how they're being delivered, most so at the beginning, it was delivered via hospital hubs because the Pfizer one was the first one to roll out and you have to keep it at very, very cold temperatures to make otherwise because it's very unstable. There's literally a little bit of what we call messenger RNA in a, in a lipid or, or fat sort of capsule thing. And if you... If you have to handle it with care because if you uh, agitate it too much or if the temperature is not right, etc., that will break. And if it breaks, then the vaccine is useless. Um, but it was started in hospital hubs, but now most of the delivery has been done in general practice. Um, so it's been done by, like I said on one of your previous podcasts, um, the primary care network or the PCN. So what a primary care network is, is a collection of surgeries which, has served, which come together to serve a population of a certain size. Um, and that's pretty pretty much all it is. So usually we have one hub and then we invite people in, get their vaccinations. Um, and that's pretty much how it's being delivered. Now, this, it's actually interesting you mentioned because the UK has taken a different approach um, and it's taken a different approach and just opted to delay the second vaccine and get as many people with, vaccinated with the first vaccine as possible. Now, there's that... That's a double-edged sword because they're kind of acting where there's no major evidence. So there's no evidence for their, that they're making, making up a, a regime on off the cuff. Scientifically, it makes sense. 
It, it does. So when we look at it, the Oxford vaccine, after the first dose, it gives you, I mean, 64%, in terms of the studies uh, from the Oxford vaccine, it gives you 64% immunity against what we call symptomatic infection, which I just explained before. And you look at Pfizer, and it's 52%. So people will look at that and think, that's not great. I've taken a first dose of vaccine, and they're still leaving me vulnerable, which is fine. But I feel like the reason they're doing it is because their primary objective in this situation is to not overwhelm the health service. So if you look at those vaccines after the first dose um, and stopping people being hospitalised or getting severely unwell, in terms of the studies, we've got some limited evidence on that. At Oxford, zero people were hosp- needed to be hospitalised. So it stopped every single person in, in that study being seriously unwell. In terms of the Pfizer, it was 90%. 90% of people who had the first dose of Pfizer, just one dose, I think it was at three weeks, um, went, went to hospital or needed to, or were seriously unwell. So that's their, their thinking mind. They've looked at that evidence. They've looked at what they're trying to achieve and they think, well, let's get as many first people vaccinated as possible because that's going to prevent hospitalizations. That's going to ease the pressure on the health service. And then even if, okay, yeah, they might be spreading it, they might get symptomatic infection, but if they're not going into hospital, then we're, we're, we're sort of home and dry, if that makes sense. Um, and it stops them dying, obviously. So it will stop the deaths and the hospitalizations, and that's what they're making. So that's where they're kind of coming from. Um, now, I mean, I don't really have a, a comment on it. I mean, I think it's a bit, it is a bit risky doing things with no evidence, but we're in a risky time and it's, it's unprecedented. So people are trying to make decisions the best they can. Um, so I completely understand the rationale on of doing it. Um, but like I say, I mean, a lot of the drug companies were coming out saying this is not, this is untested. This is not how it's meant to be used, etc. But I mean, they're very very clever people doing this. So um, and they're doing it for a reason. Yeah, because I was like, when the drug companies are coming out, I'm like, yo, dog, like. This, this, this ain't what we're trying to do. I was kind of worried. I was thinking, is this another terrible decision by the government? But your explanation of what's been happening in terms of um, the effectance, the um, how effective it is after, in, obviously in these short sample sizes, after the first yeah. dose has given me a bit more yeah. uh, optimism on how that's working. So if, if, if that's the case, then that means 7.7 million people who are, 7.7 million people, which is of the most vulnerable people, are yeah. now 90% protected against um, being very ill or multiple, or going to hospital and, yeah, and dying and shit. That's, that's, a, that's, that's a big dub. That's a big W. Um, yeah, I, I, can see, I can see that. But I mean, <laughs> ironically, uh, today when I was at work, um, one of my regulars who had two doses of the vaccine has just been admitted. What? Oh man, I was so sad. I love that guy, but yeah, he had two doses of the vaccine, and um, he's um, been admitted to, admitted to the hospital um, with COVID. Fucking hell! Yeah, so it's not nothing's foolproof. Yeah, it's life. true. It's true. It's true. Jesus, yeah. prayers with him. So um, we got also in here. What's your? Do I have another vaccine question? Um, how do you feel about people who are like, I'm not going to take the vaccine, Babylon for dead, all them things there? Um, okay, and I, I, I want to not be rude. Um, I've got to think how I'm going to put this. But, okay, so in this world, 
we humans have been battling against viruses and bacteria for our entire existence. Luckily, because of our very big brains and we've had some clever people in history, we have managed to either nearly complete, either eradicate certain diseases which were killing us off or at least heavily control the diseases that were killing us off. Why was that? That was because of vaccines. All of these serious smallpox, um, polio, all these things that Yellow were fever. Lick, let, all these things that were licking people down, left, right, and centre, killing millions and millions of people. Vaccines have stopped that happening. Now, I don't. I mean, like I said, it's a, there's a, a health. I would say bordering an unhealthy scepticism, particularly when in our community, uh, the scientists and the health profession. Now, luckily, some of it's valid, a lot of it's not, but. I just feel that it's it, it does frustrate me a little bit because I just feel that people don't realise what's actually gone before them and a lot of this stuff that's gone before them, there's rigorous, rigorous um, processes in place to try and keep people as safe as possible. Obviously, they're not foolproof, but when we're in um, a situation like this, Saying that, I mean, even if you think it, saying that out loud and broadcasting it isn't very helpful. Very especially inflammatory. With, especially, it's very inflammatory, and especially with our with our older, more vulnerable peoples. I mean, a lot of young people will catch COVID and will be fine. There's a good proportion that actually won't, even if you're not dying or you're not going unwell, which we'll probably come on to later, like long COVID and things like that. But um, it's just, it's not particularly helpful. So I do find it a little bit frustrating, Um because as well if you try and quiz these people and put pressure on them and say okay what what where's your evidence what's the basis of what you think none of it really adds up and it's not sort of uh, evidence-based there's no real science behind it there's no real major thought process behind it really that makes a lot of sense it's just um it's just bred from skepticism of the medical community i think yeah i agree i agree um i was even sure i said the vaccine just because well i don't ever like going to hospital like that but um and I think I've already had COVID, but boy, yeah, so, I think we say yeah. No, to say if you've had COVID, well, you're looking at. I mean, if you look at the current evidence, eighty-three percent, and you look at the in terms of two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, yeah, ninety percent. You look at two doses of the um, Oxford vaccine. I mean, there's a lot of um, skepticism, but it could be between anywhere between seventy and eighty-six percent in terms of immunity. So that's where having COVID would sit technically. So mm. yeah. So, but um, I don't know. I've, I've just I kind of feel that we should be wanting to take the vaccine, especially um, especially some people like, especially you people that live at home. Like, you want to go out and have a life to a certain degree. You got like parents and stuff and grandparents around you. Like, if you still want to be able to see them, like, you might. We don't even know if you could, even if you had COVID, you might still be able to transmit it. So you might want to get the vaccine. So, mm-hmm. especially for our community, when I was seeing the data from Sage and I was looking into the American data as well, like. 70% scepticism against taking the vaccine and the yeah. virus vac- and the virus has been licking us down proportionally at a much higher rate like much higher rate that kind of worries me so yeah less yeah. of the misinformation and people like take the damn vaccine I mean we like like I said we've got no long term data so if you've got no long term data you cannot wisely with any confidence say what's going to happen in the long term but like you said, these things are rigorous, rigorously tested, um, and and like we, in terms of short to medium term data, we've got good enough data at the moment. So, um, and all the data is shown that 
obviously everything comes with potential side effects and risk, but relatively they're relatively safe as as far as we can tell at this stage. One hundred, one hundred. So you mentioned long COVID early. Yeah. Certain men are saying um, Havertz has got the long COVID, but that's a story. For another, <laughs> that's a story for another day. So what is a what is a long COVID and how can it impact um, impact in, impact people from young to old, vulnerable to not so vulnerable, or whatever? Yeah. So long COVID is oh, now that's that's something that's that's weird, and that's something that's in a way in in a, in a way it's baffling me, in a way it's exciting me, in the sick twisted doctor in me because <laughs> uh, because so long COVID is so. COVID symptoms after the acute infection. So you've got the classification of post-acute COVID, which is anything up to sort of three weeks after the acute infection. Um, and then you've got long COVID, which is chronic, which is a long-term thing, which is 12 weeks post the acute infection. Now, there's been a wide variety of possible long-term complications. Now, the most common is severe fatigue, like not just a little bit tired, like I am ended, I am fit. Severe fatigue and that is, in terms of long COVID, out of long COVID sufferers, 50% have that. Jesus. The second, the second most common is, for, and that's out of long COVID sufferers, so not 50% of people that had COVID, out of long COVID sufferers. Um, the next one's shortness of breath. The other one's an ongoing cough, aches and pains, chest pain and chest tightness, headache, the persistence of the loss of smell or taste, and then the serious ones, which are like organ damage and um, so myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart, um, reduced lung volume, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a lot of people, um, both anecdotally and a little bit in the research, I'm seeing are having this brain fog where they feel like they're not as sharp mentally. Oh, wow. I'm seeing that a lot, a lot, and particularly a lot in colleagues where some of the brightest colleagues I know come in and they don't know what they're doing and they're just all over the place. I'm thinking, what's that? You're right, mate. <laughs> you know what? It's this COVID. I'm smashed. Like, I, mm. I can't think straight. So that's a, lot, a bit a big one. But um, yeah, so a lot of, in terms of um, actual studies of people who have had COVID, the only, uh, the only um, resource I could find was on the CDC, so which is the um, um, Centre for Disease uh, drug and uh, something, something was it drug and disease control, or something like that for America. Anyway, um, 26 percent of people um, aged eighteen to thirty four had sort of that post acute COVID. Um, so, and it was increasing with age. So, mm. this is actually done with non hospitalized patients. There's thirty two percent of people aged thirty five to forty nine, and there's forty seven percent of people aged fifty and older who wow. were suffering with symptoms at like near on three weeks post the acute infection. Um, so a lot of people are dealing with um, symptoms downstream. Now, they, I haven't seen any massive evidence for how, what percentage of people um, um, are suffering with long COVID, but looking around, I mean, it's looking at about 5% at the moment are actually suffering with chronic symptoms that are going on for 12 weeks or more yeah i look um, yeah go for it yeah so i looked um so bbc has an article earlier on in, well later on last year and they say they had um there's evidence that over 150,000 people are suffering long covid and according to the ons um one in 10 people they surveyed had tested positive for covid 19 had symptoms 12 weeks later i one in five had symptoms five weeks or more so it's not too mm. dissimilar to your numbers i'm not sure how accurate this is um, obviously it's, yeah. just a, it's, a, it's a survey so they're saying um so one in ten still suffered from 11 11.5 percent of them had a cough 
11.4 had a headache. Um, no, 11.5 had fatigue, sorry, as you said. That's the most prevalent yeah. one. 11.4 cough and then headache 10.1%. One one in twelve had a loss of taste and or loss of smell, and one in twenty had shortness of breath. So it, yeah. that's that's still quite significant um, numbers of people. One hundred fifty thousand, definitely massively significant. And um, looking at sort of sort of listening and looking to people about the sort of the theories why there's obviously a lot of theories that the virus actually encapsulates itself and lingers in some tissues and stuff like that. So like you're clear the virus moments most give in your body, but a bit will be left over in sort of the heart or in the olfactory nerve, which is what controls your smell. Um or um yeah, so that that that's a lot of what people are thinking. Obviously we need more evidence about that. But um yeah, there's um the ones that you are worrying about are people who've got things like there's a, a proportion of people who've got like chest pain and palpitations mm. and all this stuff and you're thinking um, is there going to be long-term heart problems secondary to this and long-term lung problems secondary to this that are really, really impactful? And what's, like, just from a personal perspective, this has been, in the, the, the way it's been a bit interesting is because it's been a little bit nice. I mean, we usually work off guidelines, so you guidelines are guidelines so a doctor doesn't have to adhere to the guidelines they're just sort of these are roughly what you should do but if you can justify what you do from first principle and you've got a reason for it and it's reasonable and a lot of people act in the same way you can kind of then do whatever you want but um uh with this because there's no guidelines because it's new so you can really think about things from the scientific perspective what you learn in medical school from first principle and start sort of treating people or at least having that conversation with people. So say, look, there's no evidence for any of this. There's no, um, uh, there's no sort of treatment regime, et cetera, but you're suffering this. This is a new illness. But from what I understand from first principle, this, I think this, this, and this is going on. I think this, this, and this might be good for you. Do you want to give it a go? And these are the risks and these are the things. And doing that, it feels like you're sort of, going back to basics and you're sort of that doctor in the sort of middle of a remote area with just a stethoscope and you're really <laughs> treating patient. And it's quite nice. It's actually quite nice because um, there was a patient, oh, it's funny because I had a patient today as well, I think we were on 9.30 and we've been going through the process for since October 20th um, and we've been going through it, going through it, going through it and um, luckily I've got him to a stage now where he's actually completely better. I mean, the only problem is he's on some... Um, untested long-term not long-term untested medication then in terms of this situation but he's got no symptoms now and the problem is he was a he was a runner um, and he used to do marathons and stuff like that and he couldn't do nothing and over the period of the last couple of months we've got him back to a position now where he's managed to do a half marathon at his previous time with no issues which which is quite quite rewarding um, but yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all, um, it's all a bit strange and we just need to wait for more information to understand what we're doing a bit more. And eventually guidelines will come out about how we're going to manage these different aspects of long COVID. Okay. So that's something to, to look out for. Um, I hope people don't have any symptoms, but make sure you check. So what would you advise if somebody believes that they have like, um, any like long COVID symptoms? Right. So if you have long COVID symptoms, definitely contact your doctor because um, a lot of places in the UK, not all, but a lot are actually setting up long COVID um, secondary care clinics with different types of specialists in them um, to try and decipher what we're going to do with you. And as I was just saying, doing what I'm doing basically from first principle, but doing it at a specialist level and then 
obviously producing research, et cetera, and find out what works for what kind of problem. Um, so I would definitely see your doctor. And again, if there's not that service in your area or the symptoms are maybe not not severe, et cetera, you can discuss with them the potential options that they can do for you. Um, and a lot of these, like I said, will not be licensed, but they will, um, a lot of them will not be licensed, but you, it's just a, it's a process where you work through it together. Um, and they'll explain to you what the risks are, what the benefits are, why they think they're doing what they're doing. And yeah, they'll, they'll go ahead. All right, cool. Love for that. So we can round up with some questions. We got, I got quite a few of them. Yeah. So I'm going to have a look. See, so let me start off um, on Instagram. So Ugo Chi, AA Arxes, how are, how are they coping? My sister's a doctor and she struggles with it sometimes. So I'm assuming she's asking about healthcare professionals, like how people are coping. Well, whoever that is, thank you. Like, just thanks for actually asking and thanks for caring. You're probably a lovely caring person, which is nice. But um, yeah, like I said, it's been the hardest year of my career so far. Um, it's been really, really tough. But obviously, you just got you just got to get on with it and power through. Looking forward to a nice holiday when we can when we can when we can go out abroad and stuff and that's pretty much it but thank you to whoever you are yeah well lovely person for that question um so antonio av oxes if you can explain the difference between the pfizer vaccines and the oxford astrazeneca one is one yeah. better than the other and uh, what vac what does the vaccines actually do to, to help the body okay fine so the, the the vaccines do the same thing in a different way so what they're doing, so a vaccine is to get you used to, or you'll get, because you, your immune system needs to recognize a certain infection, so a certain intruder. Um, and what a vaccine does is it preps your immune system to do that. Now, they basically, these two different vaccines prepare you for a part of the corona, coronavirus, which is the spike protein. The spike protein is... You probably see the pictures. It's like a round little blob with a little couple of spikes on them. Yeah, the spikes is what it uses to get inside your cells and cause its havoc, and then take over the cell. Basically, now what both these vaccines do is they encode the genetic information for the spike protein, but they do that in different ways. So the Oxford AstraZeneca one does that via DNA, and the Pfizer one does that by something we call messenger RNA. Now, um, they both in, and they both do it through different vectors as well. They get that information into your cell. Your cell's own mechanisms spot the DNA or messenger RNA and then make it into the part of the spike protein. And then that creates the immune response. Because once you've got that spike protein in your body, the body recognizes, what is this? This is an intruder. Send cells to go and look at it, deal with it, and then remember it and then recognize it from when it comes in the future. So because you've had the vaccine, which is not a live substance, which is just, it's, it's produced it's protein. So now your immune system has this memory. So when you actually are exposed to the real coronavirus spike protein, it's like, oh, I recognize this. Let, let me deal with it. Let me kill it dead. And that's basically what the vaccines do. Um, and the second part to the question was, um, oh, you said there's one better than the other. Um, well, I'm reluctant to say because I feel that one. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say which one, but one has been more transparent in terms of giving their information over than the other. One has been a bit more closed with it, 
Um, if you look at the pure numbers, the Pfizer vaccine, um, I mean, they say it's, it's, it's more efficacious, so it's got a higher efficacy of preventing symptomatic infection. However, you'd have when you look into the studies, one's more, they're not as open as Oxford. So it's difficult to say, um, and I don't really want to give anecdotes without actual evidence, but um, if you look at purely on the studies, the Pfizer one technically has a um, a higher level of uh, uh, protection, slightly. But either way, it's neither here nor there because it's, 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 it's a little bit. Okay, random, yeah. But I can't remember speaking to you. They were saying that some patients were saying they don't want the... Uh... The foreign, <laughs> they don't want the foreign vaccine. They want the British one. Like what? Lo- loads of them. Loads Swear. Elderly patients. Are like, I'll wait for the English one, please. Um, and um, yeah, they just are. They just are. So, mate, Britain's for Brits. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> that is. So it's, it's a. It's a. Maybe it's a sense of patriotism that I haven't got. But yeah. Yeah, but I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to be free from from COVID. But boy. anyway, um, Antonio, I've also asked a similar question to my G Bumi about COVID and reproduction. So Bumi asks, okay. can, can you please ask how COVID has been affecting people's reproductive system? For example, I've seen a few people in brackets on Twitter. Trying to say not not magies, but um, say that they have they, they have they have not had an. I'm assuming this is erection. She said election since they were six seven months ago. Any similar long, any any similar with long, any sorry, what can I read? Any similar long COVID side effects for women? Okay, so that's a really interesting question. Um, the, the, the I have seen this too, but I don't know where it's come from. I have absolutely no idea where it's come from. But all I can say is I categorically have seen no evidence that the vaccines are affecting anything to do with fertility. None whatsoever. No, whatsoever. no. Um, no, she, I think they're saying COVID. She's saying COVID. Oh, she's saying COVID? Yeah. Okay. I haven't seen any evidence of that either. I've not seen evidence of that either. Um, again, because I feel that that would be too early to detect. And the reason I do is because with fertility, it's one, it's not a straightforward process and it takes a long time. So, like, uh, people look at the accidents and people who can do it quickly, but it's very, very normal to be trying to conceive for a year and not being able to conceive. It's not the most, the easiest thing in the world, but I feel like that's a little bit of a misconception. So, you wouldn't really get data for that for quite a while. I mean, you it, having COVID infection and then people then trying to conceive after that. So. It, it, it would be a while before we got data on that, but I haven't seen anything myself. Okay, so not not information as of yet, but we'll keep a yeah. track on that. Um, yeah. Shout out my mum. She asks, how long does the antibody work in us before we can get reinfected again? So, hello, auntie. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> no, but, um, yeah. In terms of the antibodies, so the current evidence we've got were, I think, six or seven months out showing people still had antibodies. So that's all we can say or with any with any great um, uh, confidence is that uh, antibodies are lasting six to seven months post-infection. Now, they'll probably be longer, but that's all we can say. But it looks good. The current evidence looks like having coronavirus infection in terms of antibodies and then which will probably translate to the vaccines, you've got antibodies for a good while so that that's looking good at the moment obviously um that provides that there's no major shift so there's a difference between a variant and a strain so if it so the variant is 
different. So I think most of the time the vaccine should cover the variant, but there's something called escaping a vaccine when a virus escapes a vaccine. And that means there is enough genetic change in the virus that it becomes a different strain. And okay. if that comes, then it might be an issue. Um, so um, because the current antibodies that you'd have against the other strain may not be massively effective against a new strain. But from my knowledge, that's not happened yet. Okay, so do what I've seen variant and strain use almost in like, interchangeably. Mm. So variant is um, a case where oh, sorry, variant is a case where there is um, some genetic changes, but strain is when it's significant. Now, um, I don't think they should be used interchangeably, personally. Um, but yeah, that, that's the difference essentially. It's uh, the level of change between. Okay, between so us. so what um so. What um the, the this thing that's been slapping the UK since like they said it touched in July, but since September we've really seen the impacts of it. Is that yeah. a variant or a strain? That's a variant. That's a variant. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So all of the ones at the moment are variants. Okay. So the, the ones you hear, so you hear the, the um, South African variant. You see the Brazilian variant. Obviously, the United Kingdom that that variant. So they're all variants. At the moment. Okay. Wicked. Okay. Cheers. Thanks for that. That's actually very good information. So I need, so I need to start saying. Various to the strain, unless it's a strain. Okay, so cheers, underscore cheers, shout, underscore cheers. He responded, how, he's asked a question, how the government has fucked over the NHS. I know you guys have done this before, but a lot a lot has happened since. Um. So in what context? So if you're talking about, like like I said before, it's just a, a, a chronic underfunding of, of the NHS, really. So they know that the in terms of the population increases in age year on year, there's going to be um, more people anyway year on year um, in terms of more elderly people is what I mean. So more people over the age of 75, more people getting sick. Now, you need to increase the funding basically year on year to kind of match that. But what they've purposely done over years is increase the funding by a little bit, but not enough to actually cover um, what what they know needs to actually happen to, to make sure the NHS runs like it did in the previous year. Now, because that's happened over time, it means that the NHS is not functioning as well as it should. Um, now, I, I mean, obviously, everyone's got a different opinion. I think this is a completely intentional. I think they know exactly what they're doing. Um, um, a lot of it's ideological, um, which I, I, I can come to. I mean, we can talk about ideology if you want, but that's essentially how they're doing it and how they've screwed it over. It's all about money at the end of the day. And I mean, there is a smaller factors about how they've fragmented the service. So if you look at the NHS way back in the day, everything was the same, everything. So you could go from one place to the other, et cetera, et cetera. But because they've broke it up into little bits and giving little contracts here and there, it's now a, a fragmented service. So it's not all one holistic service, which also makes it difficult to communicate across uh, different um, different parts of the service, essentially. Okay, cheers. That excellent response, as per usual. So... Shout out Yemi. Hola Yemi. He asks antibodies. If you've caught it, how long do you how long do they last? Um and is there any point in getting a vaccine? So you kind of covered how long it lasts. You're saying seven, eight months, it's still showing there's um efficacy. So that could be longer, could be short, um, or could stop there. We don't know as of yet. But the second part of the question is quite interesting. Is there any point of getting a vaccine if you've already been licked over young COVID? Ooh, tough question, and it's tough for me to answer that um, with uh, on a public platform where it can come back to bite me. But um, now I'm just going to say, 
if you look at the current evidence, as I said before, you're, um, uh, the SIREN study showed that um, past infection provides 83% protection. Um, in terms of the vaccinations, the vaccinations after two doses of the Pfizer, you're looking at 95%-ish, and um, of the Oxford, you're looking at between 70 and 86%. So um, there is a good level of protection with previous infection. Now, I don't know what the government's stance going to be on that, um, and we will see what happens. But um, you can probably make your own decision from that information. Yeah, perfect. Well, you asked that very, very well. Um, Jas Giasa um, O2 asks about mental health. Protected yeah. and vulnerable has seen an increase in mental health cases. Oh, and wow. also, um, C, C, um, C. Sabella knows also asks mental illness impacts during lockdown. So those are kind of like two questions kind of predicated around mental health. Honestly, the mental health crisis is, 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 is just unbelievable. Um, and that's, and this is just saying from my experience at the moment, um, it's the amount of people who are really struggling, the amount of people who are suffering from several different factors, obviously, there's going to be lots of different triggers. The lack of social isolation. I mean, we're, we're social creatures. We were made that way. Um, the, the isolation, lack of having people around, the lack of things that produce endorphins, which give you, which make you joy and counteract depression, um, financial situations, family hardships, death. There's been a lot of reasons, but the mental health situation in the community is uh, is bad. It's really bad. It's worse than I've ever seen. I've never consulted this many depressed people in a, in a time wow. frame um, in, in, my, in my career before this. Lots and lots of depression, lots and lots of it. Um, lots and lots of people, unfortunately, um, trying to take their own lives and succeeding with taking their own lives. Um, and that's I haven't got any, ever, um, any numbers for that, but just from my practice and what I see, um, it's... it's uh, it's been really, really, really bad, and it's had a real impact on a lot, a lot of people. Um, and I feel sorry for all of those people because it's through no fault of their own a lot of the time, and they found themselves in a really difficult situation. People, please um, do your best to try not be a pagan as a human. Um, I know for some of us that's difficult, um, but <laughs> I think it's important to try to be as nice to people, especially just people serving you or if you go to hospitals and stuff like that, and also just being generally decent to the people around you and trying to check mm. up on people. And, and now, now I understand that like, at work, they were trying to do all these like pub quizzes and stuff like that. And really and truly, that's not my thing. I've never been the work socializer, but I really understand it, especially people who are like living alone, who are vulnerable, people have lost people. So I think just trying to be decent that's some of the only things that we can do but boy I, I don't even know what to say that's very very troubling to hear about um Faye underscore a1 asks how does the vaccine work against all these new strains so you've already explained that so far we haven't seen new strains we've seen new variants so from no, no. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly as you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. so um from the evidence you've seen um uh, how how are the vaccines going to tackled uh we've got what you've got the british stray we've got south african one we've got the neymar one like we've got bare different <laughs> so bare like said, variants gone like i said the um so you, you're going to get variants with every virus because of selection pressures so as viruses will mutate and change because of different types of selection pressures for example the one in kent i think it came from an immunocompromised patient so a patient who had a poor immune system so it and the thing is with 
with the virus, in terms of the variants, we're seeing a lot of similar changes in a lot of the different um, variants. And the reason that is is because those are the ones that are selected for, there's a selection pressure for. So just in a similar way to like giraffes have tall um, necks because um, they can reach high and get all of the nice fruit and they pass on their genes. It's the same with the virus. The virus is more likely to survive if it has certain things, so certain mutations are selected for. So we're seeing a lot of similar things and a lot of them are in the spike protein. But as, as, for, as per current evidence, that the virus should be effective against all of those current variants but but then like you say when a virus mutates enough um they do what we call escape a vaccine and they become um the vaccine will not be effective against it so that's the thing that everyone's a bit scared and worried for i mean it wouldn't be like starting from square one because we've got it would be like the uh, yearly flu vaccine you just have to change the vaccine over a bit um, and then re, but you'd have to revaccinate everyone, obviously. So if that happened in the near future, it would be a catastrophe because we're just we need to get out of this for just not just health reasons but economic reasons as well. Of course. Um, but yeah, currently the um, the the vaccines are effective against all known uh, all known variants. Okay, wicked. Great answer. I hate foxy oxes. Do do they feel um so referring to you so do you feel the vaccine is the only way out or shall we work on our immune systems? Um, in a nutshell, I feel that um it's always good to work on your immune system always. So making sure you eat well, making sure you exercise, making sure you sleep well, are obviously the the pillars of your immune function. However, there's things that our immune system cannot not protect us against, and it's just unfortunate. Um, but this is why we've had vaccines in the past which have got us past certain illnesses, and I think this one will be very similar. I feel that in terms of the only way out, because as, as I was saying, as we were saying before, if you look at how many people have actually been infected and possibly been infected, we would only be, what, 10 to 20% through this pandemic, and we'd still have 8% to go. So Jesus. if we want to go back to any type of normality, vaccines are an absolute must, and they're absolutely essential, and they're the only way out to go back to anything like a normal life, even though I think it will never be back to exactly where we were before. I feel that vaccines are pretty essential to going back to that. So, yeah, they're, they're one of the only... Vaccines are the only way out, really. Okay. Um, spending more than I should. Interesting Instagram name. Arts is mm. not related to this, but tips for current medical students, alternative careers and NHS. Thanks. Oh, okay. Um, mad. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that question. Mm. Um, spending more than you should. Sorry, can't relate to that. Relate. <laughs> yeah, definitely not, 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 not you. Just not, 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 not my style, bro. Yeah, not but this. yeah, um, different careers. So a lot of people um, in terms of... Okay, so you talk about med students. So even though I'm not going to give you specific advice, but a, a lot of people would advise that medical students at least finish their foundation one and foundation two training. The reason you should do that is because you will have a lot more clout when you go out into another career that's not medical. Mm. Um, if you come straight from medical school, um, you don't really get the doctor clout, to be honest with you, mm. which is a lot of the reason people, non-medical people will be employing you for. Um, a lot of things in the city, consultancy and things like that. So it would be advisable to finish your, uh, your F1 and F2, but then there's lots of things you can do consultancy being the main one i know a lot of strategy things a lot of public health things um now if you wanted like more specific advice um there's loads of loads and loads of people who are doing similar things um 
Um, I'll shout, uh, yeah, if you shout me on, on Twitter or something, DM me, I'll point you in the right direction. Okay, that's good. I'll, I'll put the link up. And I've got three more, I think. Yeah, three more. Uh, okay, so shout out, um, shout out Labby, uh, my guy. He says, financial times release, people who have contracted the virus are as predicted against. Oh, we kind of discussed this, actually. Um, we can discuss this so already. So shout out Labs for that question. Oh yeah, this is an interesting one. Urban software engineer he asks, or he or she asks, shall I say, thoughts on Johnson and Johnson vaccines claimed at sixty six percent efficacy rate. Okay, so sixty percent, sixty percent efficacy. I mean, so it, listening to that, you think ah, oh, that sounds rubbish, obviously. But I mean, it would. I think the WHO have got like a minimum floor of 50% in terms of efficacy rates um, for something. Um, so it's not great. It's not as good as the ones that um, are, are out at the moment. Um, it would be better than nothing, but I don't think it's going to be get any kind of mass uptake really because of that efficacy rate compared to the other ones. <laughs> in a nutshell. I mean, yeah. it's very short, short and sweet. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And finally, Akimino. Arts, why do people why why do you think there's such a stigma with blood donation within a black community? Ethic, ethnically matching blood works best for people with sickle cell, um, but our people won't donate blood. I, I wish I knew the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I can assume that some part of it is to do with the skepticism in our community to medic, the medical the profession and science generally, of course, generally. But I don't know why you. I have no idea. Um, um, but you, you're right, though. It would be lovely if um, more people from our community donated blood um, and things like that. And it would be great. And it would be great because you're helping people in your own community a lot of the time because um, we need it. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's just something that we have to try and improve and try and educate people and say, look, um, it's, it's beneficial and we're all helping each other. Yeah, okay. Okay, so I think that's it for the questions. Um, you have been elite as per usual, super duper elite. Is there anything you want to put out there before we wrap up? Um, the only thing I want to put out there is just like, uh, I want to reiterate the message before about misinformation. So please, please, please don't, unless you have sort of evidence, unless you've got it from a valid source, please don't regurgitate things that you may not know about because it can be dangerous and you 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 can be costing lives you really really can be costing lives um so please please try and use official sources and um and fact check all your information really and people don't believe everything you read on twitter don't believe everything you see on instagram live don't believe anything you listen to on clubhouse word word okay cool i agree with that i couldn't um I couldn't agree with that more. Any questions, please um, hit me up or just use the hashtag um, Dysonomics on hashtag Dysonomics on Twitter. And I'm sure Dr. Lee, in his, in his time, he's very helpful like that. He'll ask questions. He'll answer the questions. But yeah, bro, you've been an elite guest. Um, I hope you have a fantastic weekend outside of the game tomorrow. But yeah, <laughs> listeners, please make sure you subscribe um, on SoundCloud, Spotify, all those places. And of course, Patreon. There's going to be a few surprises on Patreon this week. I'm still struggling with this editing thing. Actually, you know what? if you can edit, please hit me up because I am struggling so badly. I've got so much content to put up, but I can't edit visually because I still have that skill. But yeah, until next week, people, peace and blessings. Sports Social Podcast Network.